A History of Live Sound with Chris Sam. Welcome to part two of my interview with Steve Bedlam of Bedlam Sound System, Noise Control Audio, and now the Refugee Crisis Kitchen. So once you were going around town and dodging the the police, as it were, and <laughs> did you ever have to retrieve your gear? If it got confiscated, did you ever get it back? Yeah, it? We, we've only, well, we've had it taken several times, but only taken to stop the party, and then when we leave, we get it back kind of thing. Ah. Um, the one time where we got it taken and we didn't get it back for about four months was Castle Morton, Castle Morton uh, Common. We had our system there. We linked up with another group. Well, we didn't link up. We, I borrowed a sound system off a friend of mine called Baseline, Baseline Kevin. He was this chap who just was passionately into sound but lived at home with his mum and had it all in his garden in the, in the, in the, in the uh, garage at the back of the house. And we had to sneak it out. You know what I mean? It was, it was very, very funny. But he had these huge, really long, folded... 18-inch subs, like huge, like six six foot tall, six, seven foot tall, you know, wow. with uh, two drivers in folded. So basically, they were just like a folded horn, but two of them in one box. We had his stuff and the Bedlam sound system, and we put it all up, hooked it all up, done our party, and then when we left, uh, well, a week or so later, I had to get his stuff back to him in London, and I put it all in a van that was not parked next to the sound system. So when I got it in there and I drove out, my number wasn't on their list of vehicles to pull over. Uh, they they went around and number plated all of the numbers off of all the vehicles that were around the sound systems, and they only pulled them lot. Everyone else could go. Even though my van was like an old transit people carrier, so you could see the windows. It was clear what was in there. It was big boxes. Yeah. But it didn't stop me. But then when I got out, I got back to London. Then I got a phone call from my crew saying that they tried to leave in the vehicle that was next to the sound system, and that got taken. So they took the sound system, the generator, the records, the personal possessions of whatever was in that van. And then to get it back, I had to go and – actually, the guy who, who was originally bought the sound system, Michael Jackson, this guy who worked for a company called Cox's Disco Hire – down in, where was that, in North London, um, Kentish Town. I rung him up and I was like, shit, man, I need to get the sound system back. And he was working at a venue called Black Box in, mm. in London. And Black Box done me a headed paper saying that I'd hired the sound system off of them, <laughs> basically. So <laughs> then as a representative of Black Box, me, I went up there in a van to get the sound system back and got it all back. But four months, something like that, I think it was, later. Gosh. Yeah, just in time for winter. But that was the only time we probably had to get wow. it back. So I remember being about 10 or 11 or something, and you'd watch the 6 o'clock news, and the, the main thing on the news would be, how there were these big gatherings at illegal raves mm. and there'd be someone clutching their pearls going, oh, it's terrible, they've walked past my garden. And I was, I was there thinking, wow, this is so dangerous. <laughs> and, and my sister, who was a bit older than me, I think was, she was still too young to, to go to these things. But I think somewhere in her mind, she was like, yeah, 
Yeah, I'd like to be involved in that somehow. I always assumed that it was basically lots of people who were traveling around the country and gathering in certain places. But it sounds like maybe it was people from the cities going, yeah, we'll go to that as well. Yeah, yeah city ravers. I mean, we, we started off doing raves in the city in London. And then we migrated to the country in the summer. You know, mm. and yeah, the London ravers followed us out, and the city ravers, not just London. I mean, when we did our free parties, you know, the, the info line, we would have people bringing up from Liverpool, Manchester, Birmingham, Wales, Bristol, all over the, England and Scotland sometimes asking us where the party was. And there'd be convoys of people sitting in laybys, petrol stations waiting for the address, you know, and we'd always give the, the Scousers and the Manchester crew the address an hour before anyone else, so they had uh. a bit of time to get down there. Right, listen up, Revelers. It's happening now and for the rest of the weekend. So get yourself out of the house and onto Castle Morton Common on the B4208, and that's between Tewkesbury and Ledbury on the A438. Be there all weekend, hardcore. So essentially what we did when we left England, or London rather, we went and joined the Travellers Free Festival Circuit in 92. So we started off, you know, raving in like end of 91, beginning of 92. And we were all city, 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 warehouse, 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 warehouse. And then as soon as the summer come, we mobilised everything and hit the festival circuit and stayed out in the countryside until winter again. And then we go back into the city for winter and back out again. So, yeah, it was a lot of London city folk would, would come out, yeah, and destroy the countryside. <laughs> <laughs> and then go home again afterwards. And go home again afterwards, yeah. Hindsight, hindsight, it's a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> so, did things change after Castle Morton then? Was that the sort of high watermark, or were you able to carry on for a bit longer than that? Oh, no, it wasn't the high watermark in the overall scheme of things. But it was the high watermark for change in terms of legislation, law, um, and in vibe, to be honest with you, because Castle Morton was, everything up to Castle Morton was hands in the air, smiley faces, hug your neighbour, you don't know who they are, give them a pill, give them a drink. You, know, you didn't care. It was all just mm. fucking love, basically. But after Castle Morton, especially for the sound systems, who got all their shit taken. So it did two things. It changed the vibe completely. It got darker. The vibe got darker. And Castle Morton, we had all our shit taken. We had people arrested. You know, people ended up in court for a good year or two after Castle Morton. And people's equipment never got returned. We were one of the lucky ones. We got our equipment returned because I managed to get a blag on it. So it did that. It was a downer for that. But it also was it mobilised a movement that became a lot more political after that, yeah. for better or for worse. You know? And so it changed things. Yeah, it changed things, definitely. I mean, the music definitely changed. It got much harder, much more aggressive. But that was because the mood of the people was you know, harder and aggressive because we'd been battered around a bit by the police. Yeah. 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 So yeah, it changed, but it wasn't the highlight of my whole. Well, actually, I say it was actually it was one of the major highlights of my whole <laughs> rave career, if you like. But you know, I mean, I've travelled all over America with a sound system, all over Australia with a sound system, all over Europe mm. with a sound system, 
and the UK. So there's a lot, you know, I mean, there was a time when I had 17 stages at Glastonbury, all running wow. noise control audio. And that was immense. I mean, I was like, shit. I've got to have been the biggest single supplier for multiple stages during that period. Yeah. I don't know anyone else who had 17. I mean, we're talking small to large, you know, mm. you know, huge, huge amount. Wow. But Castle Morton, of course, was the big, the big one, the big change. So were you continually growing at this point or were you did you start off thinking I'd like a sound system and that'll do me was when you say you got to you know sort of having enough gear to run all those stages at Glastonbury was that part of a plan or was it just like people just kept asking you to do gigs and you're like oh I'll try and help yeah it wasn't it wasn't a plan no I mean when we first bought the sound system it was to do illegal raves do parties have fun live a lifestyle that was what it was about and it was only when so myself and um, Tim from Spiral Tribe, we're, we're really good friends, old friends, and he's a master carpenter, brilliant carpenter. And Tim had been making a few boxes for people. Mm. And actually, we had a contact in Martin Audio who was selling stuff at the back door, drivers at the back door. <laughs> and so people would say to us, they'd bring us these drivers and go, got all these drivers cheap from uh, this geezer at the back of Martin Audio. Um, can you make me boxes for them? To Tim, this is. And Tim was like, yeah, what box do you want? You know, And then, he'd, then they'd go and get the Martin Audio designs that the drivers went into and go, can you build me those? <laughs> Tim was basically, you know, we, well, we started knocking up boxes for people. And then Tim was the carpenter and, and I kind of like was sales, I guess, if you like. And so mm. we had people saying to us, can you build a sound systems? And initially we were called TNS systems and um, Tim and Steve. And it was, <laughs> <laughs> and we built a few sound systems of our own designs, you know, just really front loaded, front direct radiating stuff, really easy mm. boxes. I mean, I remember the first boxes we built were single 18 subs that we never realized you had to put some kind of ballast in because as soon as we turned them on, they literally jumped around the floor and started moving around and we're like, that's what happens when you put an 800 watt 18 inch driver in a really small <laughs> cabinet without any weight in the actual cabinet and it's just like literally bouncing around the place yeah we soon learned you know about, and it's actually when we went to america we toured america um as spiral tribe and we took the bedlam sound system over there the spiral tribe sound system over there mm. and we set it all up and People loved the sound, you know, they were like, this is, oh, what is this? And it was all singulating W-bins, double 15 W-bins, you know, filler shaves and some just random stuff. And someone in America, group in Texas, said, can you build me a sound system? And so what we actually built was we just built them a carbon copy of the court acoustic, double 15s with the double 12-inch, 10-inch and 2-inch horn. Yeah. Because they're all JBL components. So we went and bought all the JBL components from JBL in in there. We built them all these boxes. And after we did that, we were like, shit, we made a bit of money on that. You know, damn, you know, it was easy. You know, so we did that. And when we got back to England, we were like, let's make some more boxes. So we did. We started making boxes. And that's when we met Ray Grant, who was squatter, genius, you know, anarchist. And he then come on board and started designing our own boxes, essentially. So that's when we started going into our own double 18-inch uh, subs, 12-inch folded horns, 
10 inch, one and a half inch top end. And that, so it was a progression that was purely natural. You know, it was yeah. building some for yourself, building some for your mates. Cause they've got some drivers at the back door, mine audio building some for a company in America who was loving it. And we built, built them two systems before we left America, getting back to England and telling people we'd built sound system and then go, Oh, can you build me one? And it would literally went on like that. And then we decided yeah. to become a company big mistake because then you have to fucking adhere to all the bullshit, you know, and all of a sudden all that money we was making was going to the tax man and going into rent and going into the bollocks. So, um, we became a brand and then we had to go to trade shows and hang around with salespeople who just wanted to sneer at women and do cocaine and have a massive ego and have a cockfight. And we were just like, this is not, wasn't quite the dream. This is not us, no. Because you perpetuate it was perpetuated itself. It was like, right, we've now got a premises. We've got a premises in France, a workshop. We've now got a premises in London, offices. We've got computers. We've got a website. We paid £5,000 for someone to design. You know, we've got all this stuff. We have to sell. We have to sell. We have to sell. Yeah. So then it was like, right, let's go to trade shows. Right, let's do this. Let's do that. And no matter what we did, it didn't work because it was never meant to work. It was never meant to be about that. The, the love had gone out of it. I started sitting behind a desk for eight hours a day, talking to salespeople. Yeah, we went through the various things. We started selling sound systems to friends. Then we started going to friends of friends who had a lot of money, wanted to get into the sound free party sound system things. So we sold a load to them. And then we'd have a few distributors call us, going, we've heard your product. We really want your product. We go, okay, cool. So we'd sell some to them. And then they were like, we want to distribute for you in America. We want to distribute for you here. We're like, okay, cool. And, then, and they say, yeah, but I need it for this much money. And we're going, it costs us around that to build it. They're going, yeah, but think about the coverage you're going to get. Think about all the sales you're going to get. I'm like, yeah, but sales of making one pound is no good to me. You know, yeah. we'd want to make 100% of the money. So we would sell to end user, you know, like a box a double 18 sub would cost us six to 700 pounds to build and finish. And we would sell it for 1200 quid. You know, that was a good markup, but a distributor wanted it for 800 quid. So he could sell it for 1200 quid. I'm like, it ain't going to work, mate. I'm not doing that for a hundred quid. It's not happening. Cause all our boxes, we put a lifetime guarantee on them because they're all made out of void free birch ply they're all glued and screwed, you know, and they're painted with proper paint, you know, whereas I'm not going to mention some some manufacturers that are close to both of us, you know, who are very, very popular and very expensive. Their shit's nailed together. Do you know what I mean? And it mm. is not good quality stuff. But our boxes, we drop tested them, sometimes not on purpose, but we drop test them <laughs> and they would survive. People now are still their boxes. We don't have any calls of anything going on with the boxes. You know, like I say, all our systems are out there. You never see them for sale. That's a, to me is a good sign of a you know a box well made because you never see yeah. them for sale ever. You know, but yeah, it went on from there basically. And then you know, then we then we were like, right, if we want to continue, if we want to get distributors on our side, we want to sell to people who are then going to sell. We need to compromise our designs. And as the salesperson, I was like, right, guys, Ray, Tim, let's compromise. 
you know, let's make a box that's a square box that's made out of 12 mil ply that's not screwed every every inch, screwed every two inches. That's da, 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 let's make a cheap box. Let's get a box that can retail yeah. at 300 quid. And and they were right when they said, no fucking way. You know, I got sucked into the we must sell. We're going to fail as a yeah. company if we don't. And they were like, I don't give a shit. I'm not compromising my quality. And they were right. They were 100% right. So we didn't. And that was ultimately not going to work for us because after Turbo Sound got sold and Tony Andrews and them guys was very clever with their paperwork and they managed to continue building the same box, basically, under a different name. Turbo Sound nearly went through the floor. Do you know what I mean? Because yeah. it wasn't really happening. And then they brought out the plastic impact range, and it brought them back up again. But it was a cheap-as-shit box. It was it was very average sound, but it was affordable. It was convenient. Mm. And people bought it by a truckload. Because Turbo Sound had a, a name from the older boxes. They had a name, right? And so then they brought out a box that was affordable, usable, average sound, da 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 da. And they got it back on the market. I remember, have you ever heard of Sherman Audio? Yes. Now, Sherman is a name I hadn't heard for years. When I was growing up in Mid Wales, there didn't seem to be much connection between the quiet countryside where I lived and the bright lights of the music industry. If you looked up public address systems in Yellow Pages, there were only two entries, and one of them was Sherman Audio. So one day, in need of a speaker system for a proper gig that our band had been booked for, I phoned them. But the person on the end of the phone said, Ah, we make speakers, we don't rent them out. And that was pretty much all I'd heard of them since 1999. Until now. Anyway, back to Steve. So Sherman Audio... When we first started off, they were a name that we'd heard of, and we'd, I tried to sell them amplifiers because we would partnership with FFA. FFA started off mm-hmm. with, with, um, with NCA, and we tried to sell them branded Sherman amplifiers. And I remember having this chat with the guy. He was an old boy. And he'd been in the game 20, 30 years, you know, one of the old school. Yeah. And uh, he was like, oh, noise control, I've heard of you guys, yeah. And we just started having a nice chat, no competition, no competitiveness, nothing like that. And he said, so what sector of the market are you going for? Are you going for the 90% or the 10%? I was like, I don't know what you mean. I wasn't very marketing, you know, I wasn't really on it at the time. And he said, well, there's a 10% market, which is touring, big flown systems, big installs, concert systems, you know, touring concert systems. And then there's a 90%. And the 90% is small boxes, disco hire, small pubs, clubs, that kind of thing. And I was like, oh, well, you put it like that, we're going for the 10%. He went, yeah, I did that for a while. And now I'm doing a 90%. And what I do is I'm compromising, but I'm doing my best that I can whilst compromising. And I was like, oh, right. He goes, well, think about it. 90% is your market. If you go for the 10%, you've got to be really specialist. You've got to work a lot harder. You've got to really get up people's asses. You've got to become buddy with everyone. You've got to, you've got to be an industry bitch, basically, to do the 10%. Yeah. And he was right. I'll see that later on down the line. You know, I'm like, we can't compete with JBL. We can't compete with Martin Audio, with Function One, with L Acoustics. It's just the money they've got is just ridiculous. I remember doing 
a demo in Holland. There was a super club opening in Amsterdam. And one of our clients out there got us in to do a demo. The demo was we would go there, we would set up three rooms in this nightclub hmm. before it would open. And they would have all their resident superstar DJs come in, play on the sound one day each. They'd get a whole day to go into each room with one of us there, tweak the sound to their to how they like it. And then we left, and then a month, another month, JBL would go in, another month, Martin Audio would go in there. Function didn't do that one. So it was JBL, Martin Audio, and Noise Control Audio that got the look in. Mm. And they basically said they're going to let the DJs decide on what PA to put in there because they really wanted it to be a super club based around the DJ and the sound system so on so anyway we wait a few months down the road and the results come in from the thing 85 percent of all of them said they wanted noise control system and the reason they said they wanted it was that even if when they got there it didn't sound how they wanted it to sound after a day or two of messing around with the sound it got to where they wanted it to go the jbl stuff they said they couldn't make it do what it was a very set in its way box yeah system rather um martin audio they could tweak a bit so that was the main thing was that you know for different genres of music for different things you could tweak it and get it where it wanted to be because it was a system that was versatile and they rung us up and said well you guys have won the contract you know we were like oh brilliant and that was a three hundred and fifty thousand euro installation you know we were like Brilliant. We haven't had many of those or any of those. Do you know what I mean? That's a big, yeah. big installation. And then as we're going through the contracts and the, the supply lines and everything else, we get trumped by JBL. JBL said, you can have the whole system for free. All we want is unlimited guests passes to bring people in. And they were like, can you match that? I'm like, fuck off. <laughs> No. give you you know it's going to cost me 150 grand 200,000 to make this shit no way I'm going to give it to you for free and it was that was how it was do you know what I mean and, it, and, yeah. and I remember sitting there with a guy at Frankfurt who I went and sat in the Harmon Carden stand I went and sat in this car Harmon Carden car listening to the car audio in there you know mm. it was a nice fat sound it was a big Range Rover really nice and there was this guy sitting in the driver's seat, American guy. And uh, he was like, what do you think of the sound? I went, oh, mate, it's, it's amazing. Do you know what I mean? It's brilliant sound. And he was, when he's American, I was like, oh, you're American. He goes, yeah, I'm from the Harman Kardon USA. I'm the main, I'm the marketing manager for the whole of Europe. So I have to attend the trade shows and meet with people and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. So I was like, oh, all right, cool. So we started chatting and I brought up this nightclub in Holland. And I said, you know, how is it? You know, I said, little companies like mine can't compete because you gave away a whole £350,000 sound system, probably more by their costs. And he was like, oh, yeah. He goes, well, that just comes out of our marketing budget. And he says, and what we do is we just write that off as a marketing budget, which means it's tax-free. We get, you know, Basically, you know, Harman Kardon, who own JBL, Soundcraft, well, I don't know if they own Soundcraft anymore, but, you know, all of those brands, he said, we make all our money in car stereos and office speakers and office microphones. 
that's where we make our money, not pro audio. He said pro audio is a loss leader for us, and we use it to market so that when somebody walks into a hi-fi store or a car audio store, they've heard the brand JBL, and they buy JBL. He goes, and we'll make three, four hundred percent profit on our car speakers and ten percent profit on our pro audio, but we use it as a marketing tool. There's no competition. We couldn't compete yeah. with that. This is impossible. You know, a couple of years ago, I was working at the festival. Mm. And the third stage was the the dance tent. It was sponsored by JBL. Mm. So the guys from the office down in Hertfordshire somewhere came out and put in their new vertex or vtx system yeah. terrible thing and they had big scrims over the speakers <laughs> they made the scrims out of the wrong material so it wasn't blow through <laughs> and we're standing there going it sounds terrible and you went and stood on stage and it was ear piercing 12k bouncing back at the office scrim. <laughs> it was probably dangerous to be on stage you had to wear ear protection it was just it was crazy <laughs> and I said to the system tech from JBL, I said, look, I think we're going to have to set those scrims down because it's ruining the sound of your system. And this is this is your big new showcase of your new mm. PA. The whole reason that you're here is to show off your new... It's one of the first times they're using this new system. And the scrims had a picture of JBL Bluetooth headphones on. And he said... Well, I'll, I'll just make some calls and see if we can do that. Came back about 10 minutes later and goes, we can't take the scrims down. Yeah. He said, people are going to come in here and it doesn't matter if it sounds good or not. They just need to see that it says JBL and that, that their stomach's being hit by bass. Exactly. And, that was, and I was like, oh, that's the job we're in then, is it? Yeah, soulless. No love. All about marketing, all about selling JBL headphones, which they make a fortune on compared to, to selling PA speakers, which they don't make a fortune on. Uh, and there's the industry in a nutshell, unfortunately. <laughs> well, uh, I, I suppose I should try and steer this slightly towards a conclusion, but I thought it might be interesting to just have a, a very quick word about what you're doing now, because it intrigued me that you were now running the, the refugee kitchen. Yeah, yeah. And... And I was wondering, was that something that, were you looking for something to do when you stopped building speakers or did you just, did you fall into it? Or was no, it... no, I mean, we were, we were, we were just finishing noise control audio around that time, 2013, 14, so, but I was still doing hire. You know, I still had a production company that we were doing loads of hire of noise control audio. One of the things we did, because we always did hire, because we never sold enough to keep it open as a company, you know, so we did hire as well. And we'd always use a lot of our customers, you know, to we only use noise control kit, basically. And so, no, it wasn't something I was looking for. The, the RCK, that was another thing that fell in, you know, it was literally me and a few friends wanting to get in and help mm. in a crisis situation, knowing we could. And we just basically, you know, jumped on board doing it. Uh, and it's now become full-time. But a lot of the skills I've learned, a lot of skills I'm in, in doing, using in RCK, comes from the sound system world. You know, mm. loads of them. You know, the tolerances, working in tough situations, deadlines, timelines, police brutality, 
all of these elements, you know, when we first started the kitchen, the building we had had no electricity, no water. You know, that was just basically a squat in my eyes, and it didn't bother us at all mm. to set up a kitchen in there. And, you know, we soon found water because we found the sprinkler system. You know what I mean? And we got generators, and we wired up generators, and we did this, and we did that, and it just didn't phase us. Talk, yeah. you know, talk to any catering company. Go. There's an abandoned derelict warehouse over there. There used to be a metal workshop. Got metal dust everywhere. No electricity. No water. Do you fancy setting up a kitchen? It's like everyone's worst nightmare. We're like, yeah, cool. Let's do it. Because <laughs> the reason why was we know empty buildings inside out. We know exactly what's going on in them. So yeah. you know they're married up. But yeah, I still do audio. I mean, I still do event stuff. I, I manage, I co-manage, and produce the common at Glastonbury Festival, you know. Uh, yeah. So I've got four stages there that we do. And, and until this year, we did all the sound in Block 9. And last year was the, we did on Fairground. So we still had a, a yeah. foot in a door. But that's now we've not got the equipment because we've sold it all. Uh, so we hire it in, and, and uh, unfortunately, the equipment that we need for the, some of the venues, we can't get hold of noise control stuff. Because, like I say, it's, it's out there, and people are not selling it and whatever. So we use Danley. That's the what we we use the Danley system in our main venue, the Temple, mm. and it's a stonker, it's killer, 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 killer sound in there. You know, those big boxes with the twenty-two drivers in one box. You know, immense things. Yeah, you know, quarter of a ton, but they're immense. Um, but yeah, so RCK essentially now that's my full time thing now, especially with no festivals this year at all. Yeah, and it's an amazing project where we've fed over three million meals to people in four years, and we're still doing it now. I don't know lots about it, but is is it a process that you will go where you are needed, or how, how do you? Well, we we went to Calais because that's where we were needed. Yeah. And the need never stopped. So we continue there. I mean, we did plan to mobilize and go mobile and go to Greece, but mm. it never happened because Calais never slowed down. Mm. You know, we were thinking Calais is going to slow down anytime soon. It just didn't. It just didn't slow down. So Even though that's out of, the, you know, it's maybe not in the news as much as it was a few years ago. Mm. I take it, it the need is still just as great. Yeah, there's still about 1,500 people there, you know, and there's no hot food apart from us. Apart from every now and then, there are some small organisations that come with food, but it's smaller numbers. It's not everywhere. When we do it, we cover everywhere. You know, yeah. So we were doing 1,800 meals a day. Wow. When the lockdown happened, and we're back up and running again now. Yeah, I, full I, on. Um, my, my first job was in catering for outside caterers. And getting eighteen hundred meals a day is not that that's that's mm. a major operation. Yeah, 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 it is, yeah. Well we know we need thirty people, thirty five people every day to do that. And we have to distribute it, you know, as well. So it's not just the cooking of it, it's the distribution of it as well. Yeah. Are you now recognized by authorities in the sense that they will let you come are you fighting to get in there to, to do this or do you No, so in, in France we took the government to court and won. So we're legally allowed to serve food because they don't. I mean, we also do it in the UK. We do. We have an outreach project in Camden, Hackney, Bethnal Green, Brixton and Edinburgh. So we do homeless food in the UK as well. Yeah, soon to open up in, in other places as well. Yeah, yeah it's good. Well, 
it's really interesting to hear how life is taking you in different routes. But, yeah. But it all feeds into each other, you know, the experiences from getting events up and running feeds mm-hmm. into your current oh, absolutely experience. does yeah absolutely does yeah 100% couldn't do it without the squatting the living on the road couldn't have done this without that at all oh one question mm-hmm. Steve Bedlam mm-hmm. is that the name that your mother gave you no no Bedlam <laughs> oh. <laughs> no Bedlam is the name of the sound system right. so Bedlam sound system I mean the sound system wasn't wasn't just me it was a load of us um, yeah. and you know, I was called Steve Bedlam from Bedlam Sound System. No, my name is Stavrinides, is my real name. And uh-huh. um, Bedlam came from one of my mates who used to read dictionaries for fun <laughs> and uh, came across this word, and we were trying to think of a name of a sound system, and he said, what about this? And we were like, that's fucking brilliant. That was it. Love it. Bedlam, obviously, was the mental asylum mm. in London. There was one called – it was called Bethlehem originally – but because of the South South London accent, it started getting called Bedlam. Um, and it was in the Imperial War Museum. So it was a big, huge mental institution where they locked up uh, anyone, whether they were mad or not, is where illegitimate royals used to go to. And you'd lock up your wife there if she uh, didn't like what you were doing and say she drank yeah. say she drank whiskey, and that was considered mad apparently back in the day. It's quite quite <laughs> sick, actually. The list of things that you could get put into Bedlam for was mm. was harrowing. And literally, a woman drinking whiskey was one of them or something like that. She must be mad to drink a man's drink, you know. Well, uh, thank you very much for that. That's, uh, no worries, mate. No worries at all. That, that's great. And hopefully one day we'll meet up in person. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. Maybe a glass <laughs> of me next year. <laughs> Brilliant. Cheers, all right, mate. Then. Cheers. The History of Life Sound is presented by me, Chris Snow, executive producer at Spare Women, and is a bandwidth production.